So we've been uh, studying through this genealogy of Jesus that is in Matthew's Gospel, leading us all the way to Christmas Eve and the celebration of the arrival of Jesus, and asking ourselves, okay, why are these people listed here? It's not just a historical document, in some sense it is, but Matthew's trying to show the importance of Jesus by telling these stories. And so, uh, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy goes like this. We're good to go. Jack? Genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first week we talked about who Abraham was and the covenant that God made with him. And it goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Two weeks ago we talked about Isaac and Isaac allowing himself to be a willing sacrifice and what that meant. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And last week Tony did such an awesome job telling uh, chapters worth of story of of Jacob in a short time and really getting to the essence of Jacob's uh, renewed identity in God and how that uh, Jacob becomes Israel and, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Now Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. This is fascinating right here, right? Because Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. But the guy who's picked out here is a guy named Judah. We'll talk about why in just a second. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Matthew, every once in a while, will introduce a mother, and it's really important for us to talk about that storyline. Matthew's intentional in that. Uh, And so, Tamar is the mother of Perez and Zerah. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Uh, If you want to learn more about Perez, Hezron, and Ram, I can point you to some study materials. Today, we're just going to talk about Judah and Tamar and the importance of their place in this storyline. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you have any family baggage? Right? Do, you have any, do you have any stories deep in the annals of your family history that are locked up deep, and you don't want anyone to know that you are connected to that person way back when, right? Yeah. I would tell you those stories, but that's not what we do, right? Those stories are locked up. I'm related to plenty of those people. I'll tell you one story. Uh, So I'm told, I never met this person, there is one person deep in the annals of our history who was arrested by the FBI for terroristic bomb making, right? These are the kind of stories that you don't want out there in the public, that somehow generations back you're related to this person, or even worse, right, that some of us and our ancestors, we have relatives who were slaveholders or who were, were hard, bad people in so many different ways. Well, Matthew is kind of letting the cat out of the bag here, right? If you know anything about Judah and Tamar, you know this is a story that should not be told, right? This is one of the things that's locked up and you throw away the key and no one hears about it. Problem is, God decided to record it in Genesis chapter 38. And so we're going to look at it this morning and ask the question. This is really going to be our central question this morning. Okay, so this happened, but why on earth would Matthew want to put this in Jesus' genealogy? So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Genesis 38. Uh, It's a long chapter. We're going to try to read through it, but I might skip at times as we go through just to keep pace here. So... Genesis 38, verse 1, At that time Judah left his brothers. Remember, there's 12 of them. Judah leaves. He went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. Uh, There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her, uh, made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Ur. 
I'm going to pause just for a minute and talk about the fact that they named their son Ur, right? What a crazy name. No, I'm going to pause and just, <laughs> just warn you that like, there's stuff in this story that is going to turn your stomach, and there's stuff in this story that like, you're going to be like, did he really have to say that with my teenage kids sitting near me? Parents, your job to wrap this up at the end and, and make sense of this, right? <laughs> they're not coming home with me. They're going home with you. I'm just reading the Bible to you, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, she conceived again and gave birth to a son. They named him Onan, right? A little bit better than her. She gave birth to still another son. They named him Shelah. Uh, it was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So there we go. Judah and Tamar. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. You're already beginning to see, this is weird. How did that happen in Jesus' genealogy? Uh, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law. We won't take time to make sense of this, but this is what they did back then, okay? Uh, I can explain it later if it's important to you. Uh, sleep with your brother-in-law, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. Technically, he would be brothers. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, uh, so forth and so on. Verse 10. <laughs> what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. Of course it was. So the Lord put him to death also. Oh my goodness. Verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. Because this is working out so well, right? For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, uh, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, there he is again, went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance to Enam, uh, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that through Shelah, uh, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So Judah's not fulfilling his promise. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. This is great. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she replied. He says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send me, she asked. And he said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, its staff in your hand. This is statements of identity here, right? Interesting. She said, so he gave them to her, he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but, she, but he could not find her. <clears throat> he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there's not been any prostitutes here. And Judah said, let her keep what she has or she will become or we will, sorry, become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. 
And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. She said, I am, I am pregnant, but by the man who owns these things. Uh-oh. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Of course, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on his wrist, and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, the other brother came out and said, so this is how you have broken out. And his name was Perez. Perez means he broke out, right? What a great name. Then his father, uh, who had the scarlet, then his brother, excuse me, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out. His name was Zerah. Oh my goodness. No one, by the way, no one ever preaches on this, right? Because why would you do that to yourself? Except Matthew has to include them in the genealogy, doesn't he? Thank you so much, Matthew. And so we have to ask ourselves, oh my goodness, why then? Why would Matthew include them in the genealogy? And of course, there's an obvious answer, and that is because that's the lineage from which Jesus comes. Fair enough. But you still could omit some of this, right? I think Matthew's up to at least three things, and this is what I want to spend our time thinking about this morning. The first thing is that Matthew wants to remind his readers at the very beginning of his gospel, before he gets into any of the storyline of Jesus, the power of the destructiveness of sin. Okay? The second thing he wants to highlight to his readers at the very beginning of this gospel is the power of the redemptiveness of grace. And then, ultimately, what he's pointing to is the power of the rescue of Jesus. So let's think about these three things together. Judah is not a good guy, right? Did you get that from that story? Did that come out loud and clear to you in in several different ways? But Judah, in many ways, is a placeholder for humanity. This is what human beings are capable of left to our own devices. And think about it for just a minute. When we think about Judah, we see the power of the destructiveness of sin, but really what we're meant to see is ourselves in so many ways. You might say, well, I wouldn't do these things, and fair enough, I I hope that that's true, and I hope that's true of myself. But we are capable of them. And so we see in Judah really the brokenness of the heart of humanity, don't we? And we look at Judah and we see that something is broken deep within him. These aren't just external choices. In fact, if you hear some of the storyline of Judah before we get to this point, outside of just his birth, he shows up in the chapter right before this. It's a fairly famous story in the Old Testament. You might be familiar with it. Uh, Joseph was one of these 12 brothers. He's one of Judah's brothers. And none of the brothers liked Joseph. He was the youngest, right? He was spoiled. Uh, He was a brat, it's true. He was arrogant, and he was rubbing it in uh, the brothers' noses that he was his parents' favorite. None of us, if we were Joseph's brothers or sisters, would have been particularly fond of him. However, his brothers ratcheted up a notch, and they say, you know what we're going to do to this guy? We're going to kill him. 
know what Judah says to that? He says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would we kill him? What can we get from that? Let's sell him into slavery because at least we can gain money and resources from it. And we get a, a, a glimpse into the heart of Judah, don't we? That this is a man who is about himself. This is a man who's about personal gain at the cost of nearly anything. And we see it in this story immediately. Because this whole line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to Judah, they've been given a task. You remember from our first sermon in this series. They've been called. God's going to make them a great family so that they can be a blessing to the world. There's a sense in which God's constructing this family, but our, our, the red flags should be popping up, like alert, 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 at the very beginning of Genesis 38 with the statement that says, Judah left his brothers. Do you see this? There's a sense in which Judah is stepping outside of the family that God is creating. And immediately what he's doing is constructing his own family. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with Judah getting married or having kids or any of these things. But when we read it in its narrative structure, we understand that what's actually happening here is Judah saying, okay, God, I know you're doing this, but I'd rather do this. Does it make sense? Yes, you're creating a family. You've given me an identity. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go create my own and build my own identity over here. In essence, in the very same way Adam and Eve in the garden account say, thanks for the identity you've given us, we want something different, something more powerful, something more significant. We have in Judah the very same human intuition that's happening. And then to be quite frank, we have in Judah someone who is the epitome of a raging hypocrite, right? Judah is what outsiders like to call Christians all the time. He finds out that his daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute, and what does he want to do to her? Burn her to death, right? Oh, by the way, how does Judah live his life? I'll let you in on a secret here, right? It's clear that this is not Judah's first time looking for a prostitute. How else would his daughter-in-law have known to go do this, except that this was his normal pattern of life? So this is a guy who's a chronic offender of something who's just waiting to judge someone else for their failure. Do you see it? And all of these things are linked together, I want you to understand, in the human heart that is out for itself to build its own identity at the cost of anyone else that gets in its way. Do you see it? This is why the prophet Jeremiah says this, about the heart. Because the heart is more deceitful than all else. Listen to this. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is a statement not about Judah, though it applies. This is a statement about the broken human heart that lives in rebellion to God. It is desperately sick. It's why when David is confronted with his own brokenness, he doesn't say, God, patch up my heart, repair it, stitch it together, bandage it. He says, no, create in me a new heart. The idea is that it's so desperately broken and sick that it's beyond repair in and of itself. It needs new creation. Do you 
you see this? And so when this storyline pops up, this story of Judah and Tamar uh, for the people of God, and, and, and Matthew's writing to a largely Jewish audience, they would have known this story. And this would have been a touchstone story for them that was like, uh-oh, we're not supposed to live like Judah. But wait a minute, here he is. What's happening here? The power of the destruction of sin. But even more so than just the glaring sickness of the human heart, the reality is that sin and destruction that comes from it is a path that human beings walk down. It is not an isolated occurrence. Does this make sense? This destruction, this sinfulness, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are step after step after step that leads to the massive destruction that happens here. Let's just take Judah's existence uh, or or storyline here uh, as an example for ourselves and see how it might relate to different storylines in our own lives. What's the first thing that Judah does? He leaves his brothers. This is important. This isn't just an anecdote. This isn't just setting the stage. This is the first step towards destruction. You see this? And in the very same way, when we step outside of Christian community, we are putting ourselves in grave danger of continuing a journey towards destruction. Listen, I get it. To live in the United States, to be a modern Western American person is to be ruggedly individual. I don't need anyone, right? Except, yes, you do. When we are left to ourselves and our own devices, we put ourselves in a deeply compromised position. And I understand that global pandemics have changed the world in which we find ourselves, but can I just encourage you, and gently for those who are listening from home, I understand there are different decisions at play, but not connecting to Christian community cannot be the new normal for believers, global pandemic or not. Because when we isolate ourselves, even with good intentions, we are setting ourselves up for deep compromise and potential destruction. I understand that some people are extroverts and some people are introverts. I understand how that works fairly well because uh, there's this thing called an ambivert. Have you ever heard of this? The person who's kind of both, and that's me. So I know what it's like to feel extroverted and I know what it's like to feel introverted. And I understand, particularly for introverts, your need to recede and to be recharged and to be alone. And guess what? You need to do that and you need to be intentional about it, but not at the expense of Christian community. We have to see this as essential for our livelihood. Any experience of massive destruction almost always happens by separating ourselves from community as the initial spark. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because we get to verse 2, and immediately Judah makes a friend. (laughs) Turns out not to be a great friend, it seems like. Hira the Adulamite, right? And so here's what begins to happen, you understand, is that it becomes really significant who and what we listen to. 
Because we can listen to things or hear things, and for a time being, we can differentiate or separate. But the more we envelop ourselves in a certain kind of message or a certain kind of thing, is the more we become like it. We are always given towards it. We are much more influenced than we would like to acknowledge about ourselves. And so here is Judah in a new place trying to build a life for himself and immediately has a person who's going to influence him in unfortunate ways. And isn't it true for us sometimes, especially outside of Christian community, that the things that we're listening to, the messages that are are invading us, the, the, the things that are all around us, it begins to wear us down, it begins to pull us in a new direction. We begin to listen to things and attach our identity to them as opposed to the gospel. Things like politics, right? Someone has told me there's a big election happening in a couple of days, right? And guess what? Uh, As best I know you, about half of you are going to be disappointed in the outcome, and the other half are going to be pretty happy about the outcome, right? Because there's differences and diversities here. But can I suggest to you, in so much as we have said that you, you ought to be engaged politically, that's part of what it means to live in this world, it is not your identity. And if it is the only thing that you are listening to, over time it's going to become more of who you are than being a person of faith. Does this make sense? We have to be careful what we're taking in. In the same way, to the messages of materialism or hedonism, you know what hedonism means like pleasure. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? And we, we say, listen to these things, hear these things. Messages are coming to us all the time, all the time, all the time. And unless we have other people speaking truth into us, we wear down and we go after these things and they compromise us and they lead us into paths of potential destruction. This is why Christian community is so significant to us. Because, and listen to this carefully, one of the messengers that we give too much credence to is our own flesh. Now, I've talked about this a lot, right? The Bible tells us that we have lots of enemies as Christians. Satan, we believe that, right? Uh, Satan is real, he's against, he's powerful. Uh, He's got demons and minions and fallen angels who are working, obviously, the the world, the combination of all these things. Obviously, the enemy, and they're working to compromise it. But in so doing, we're so quick to put blame outside of us. The truth also remains that inside of us is a rampant enemy of the gospel. It's the very thing that's looking for its own identity and rebellion to God. It's what the New Testament writers call our flesh, the broken part of us, the corrupted, sick heart that's in us. And when we isolate ourselves, sometimes the thing that we're actually listening to is that particular voice that's telling us very subtly off messages to get us farther and farther and farther away from a gospel-centered way of living. There's a path to destruction. Judah leaves his brothers. And then he listens to Hera the Adulamite. And then he marries a Canaanite woman. Now we might say at first glance, fine, he's supposed to get married, but of course all of his ancestors have said we're not supposed to marry Canaanite women, right? It was clearly said, and in fact when Judah's own sister 
uh, was desired by a Canaanite man, he said, no way, we're not intermarrying with Canaanites, you're not allowed. When it was to his sister, no, no. But for me, yes, yes. You see? And so we begin to see here how now what is just leaving community, listening to voices, now marrying into. You see the progression that's happening here. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. The marriage doesn't happen without the listening, and the listening doesn't happen without the leaving. It's kind of like Psalm 1. Our community group leaders were together on Friday night, and we, we read through Psalm 1, the beginning of that, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, right? Walk, stand, sit. Progression. The sitting doesn't happen without the standing. The standing doesn't happen without the walking. And we need to think about these things because once we find ourselves in the ultimate position of compromise, our ability to resist it is almost nil. That's why Jesus says, listen, here's how you should pray. Lead me not into temptation. Why? Because you won't be successful if you find it. The idea of Judah being married is less about taking a wife and having kids. It's more about being joined to a way of life now that is apart from the one that God had called them to. Do you see this? But it doesn't happen without the things first. And then all of these things lead ultimately to all kinds of destruction. Think about this story for just a second. Think about Judah's legacy as a dad. Listen, as fathers, the decisions our kids make is not a direct representation of how we've parented them. But sometimes stories tell a little bit more, don't they? And this story is meant to show that this family life is deeply broken. I mean, we look at Jude and we say, this is a really bad guy. Don't you get that? But think about his son. His son was so bad that God put him to death. And how bad must he have actually been? And then his other son, who wants to use Tamar for his own pleasure without taking on the responsibility of serving her. This is Judah's legacy. This is the destruction that ripples out from his brokenness. We're thinking about the destruction that comes from Judah because Judah is a self-protector, Right? trying for personal gain. And so even how he treats Tamar and and withholding his final son from her is so that his legacy can be protected at her expense. You see it? Because what happens if his third son dies and then he has no legacy? Or think about the massive destruction that happens because of Judah's sexual escapades. It even speaks of how he, we're reading into it a little bit here, but the way it speaks about how he treated his wife even leaves us a little bit like, right? He took her, you know, like, ugh. I understand it was a different time, but there's a sense in which Judah is a man of power and control and doing things his own way, and the destruction is massive. And then look at him as a father-in-law.
who ultimately his decision is, hey, go back to your own dad and live there as a widow. And he strings her along and ultimately provides her, uh, this is an interesting part of the storyline, right? Irony, perhaps. He ultimately provides her with the wrong kind of kid, right? A young goat instead of his own son. See this? Massive destruction. But destruction that comes from, heart, from our hearts and is a path. It's something for us to reflect on deeply and understand when we encounter a story like this or at the beginning of the redemptive story of Jesus that this is the kind of world he's coming into. And it's not just because of people like Judah, but it's also because of us. That though our external actions might not be as objectionable, we hope, as Judah, our inward brokenness is equally as deep as his. The heart is desperately sick. Why does Matthew include it? First point, right? The power of the destruction of sin. But the second point is equally as important. It's the power of the redemption of grace. Now think about this for just a minute. And we need to say this, right? Judah kind of says it the right way. That that Tamar is more righteous than he. Is that how he says it? Something like that, right? It's not that Tamar is perfect in this story. Let's be honest here, right? Her choices are not what we would suggest for anyone, nor what we would condone. However, she still is a victim in this story. And the truth is that people like Tamar, the poor and the broken and the destitute, the orphan and the widow and those who are trampled upon, the foreigner who Tamar is, these are the people who God himself constantly tells us his heart is for. And of course he's going to meet her in this moment, even in her wrong choices. And God's grace is abundant to Tamar. That she is with child, but doubly blessed with twins. Incredible story of God's meeting her in that moment and blessing. But even beyond Tamar, that God's grace is powerful even to a guy like Judah. We'll talk about this in just a second. But Judah becomes the line through which the kingship of Israel is preserved. Now why? Aren't there better choices? We're going to find out, yes, there was a better, one better choice, right? The other brothers, bad guys. There was potentially one better choice. But that's not the point, is it? God was always setting this storyline up as a storyline of gracious redemption that he was going to meet it in its brokenness, not superimpose something on top of it. We don't fully understand or know. It seems plausible and right that at some point later in his life, Judah is reconnected to his family and to his storyline of faith. And there's, there's redemption that's happening there too. But ultimately, Judah is said things like this, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah... The king from the clan of Judah. There's redemption and grace even for Judah. A future 
for him. Listen, there are people who wrongly believe that the choices they have made to this point in their life have disqualified them from the grace of God. You need read no farther than Genesis chapter 38 to know that's foolishness. It's not true. Are there consequences for the choices we make? Absolutely. Are some of those consequences lifelong? You better believe it. Do they disqualify us from the grace of God and the potential of God redeeming even the most horrible things we have done? Not a chance. God's grace is stronger than our brokenness. And so Genesis 38 actually becomes a storyline, a touchstone, if you will, for the way in which God intends to meet the world in its full and total brokenness and depravity in order to redeem it. God intends to do to the world what He has done to Judah. And crazy enough, He's going to do it somehow through this line. The power of the redemption of grace. And then ultimately this storyline is summed up by looking at the power of the rescue of Jesus, right? Let's just cut down to it. Why on earth does Matthew include it here? Because Jesus is the answer to the problem of Genesis 38. It had to get to Jesus, otherwise the grace could never be fully realized. The redemption could never be fully embodied. But for us to understand it, we need to broaden the story for just a minute, right? So when I tell you, people ask me, how do you read Scripture? And one of the best ways I tell people to read Scripture is you you ask a couple of questions when you're reading the passage. Where where is God? What do I learn about God? Second question, no matter where you're reading in Scripture, where is Jesus? He's always there, right? It might be a type of Jesus or an allusion to Jesus or something that foreshadows Jesus. And third question, where am I? Now, we typically read this wrong because we always put ourselves into the place of the hero or the heroine of the story, right? And I've got to be more like that person. No, Jesus is usually that part, right? So, so now you say, okay, but now Genesis 38, where is Jesus? I don't see him really anywhere in Genesis 38. And you're right. But Genesis 38 is right in the middle of a bigger storyline where we see Jesus loud and clear. In fact, the whole storyline is about Joseph. It's not about Judah. This is thrown in there to juxtapose itself to a particular story of Joseph. If you want to see Jesus, you have to look at the storyline of Joseph. That's Jesus in this story. Unfortunately, where are we? Judah. (laughs) Tamar, right? Think about this with me for a minute. Joseph, in Genesis 37, is sold by his brothers into slavery to the tribe of Ishmael, ultimately ends up in Egypt. He's bought by a guy named Potiphar, who is a higher up in the Egyptian government, and he's a slave in a foreign land. He did not leave his brothers. They sold him off. Do you see this? But while he's in Egypt, he rises to esteem there, Uh, And the Scriptures tell us that this happens because he walks in close proximity to God. That is, he's constantly listening to God. 
so closely, in fact, that he's able to help people understand some of the dreams that are happening to them. That is that even though he's separated, not of his own choice, from his, his way of life and his family, he's still very careful to listen to the right voice. You see it? And then in Genesis chapter 39, right on the other side of this chapter, a fairly famous story in the storyline of Joseph happens. Potiphar, who Joseph works for, has a wife, and she takes an interest in Joseph. You remember the storyline? And she's going to have him no matter what. She doesn't care. And Joseph resists it at all costs, even to the point of just running away. And right there, friends, is an important storyline for us as we deal with sin and temptation in our own life. Sometimes the best way to respond to temptation is to get the heck out of there, right? Even if it means you've got to leave your robe in your wake. And this is what Joseph does. And ultimately, Potiphar's wife spins the story and says, no, he was trying to come after me. See, his robe is here. But it's his robe, not his signet. It's not his identity, like his brother Judah. You see the difference going on there? Yet Potiphar, because he's going to stick up for his wife, puts Joseph in prison. He's wrongly accused for something that Judah himself actually did. You see the storyline of Jesus and the story of Joseph? Who's sent into exile in human form. Who walks closely with God in our midst. Who resists the temptation of sin that leads to destruction even though He faces it in far greater fury than any of us ever would from Satan himself but is ultimately imprisoned for something he didn't do, dies a death that is not his to die, so that he might restore and redeem the whole world. What happens to Joseph after he's in prison? Eventually, he's raised again to positions of power. We hear rumors of a famine. Joseph leads the Egyptians to great harvests And ultimately, his brothers end up coming down to Egypt to be rescued from an ongoing famine. Joseph becomes redemption to his family that had rejected him. That's the Gospel. That's who Jesus is. And the only reason Genesis 38 is recorded at all in the book of Genesis is to juxtapose it to Joseph. Humanity and Jesus. And when we honestly look at our heart, we can only come to one conclusion. We need supernaturally rescued from our Creator God. And thank God that His grace is far more powerful than our brokenness. See, Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of Judah. Remember we said the that Judah becomes the line through which the king comes, that ultimately Jesus comes through Judah? So you have to ask yourself, as I've just juxtaposed these storylines, why not Joseph? Why Jesus should come from Joseph, not Judah, right? But it can't be that way. Because unless Jesus comes from the very essence of the brokenness, He can't be the one to redeem it. Don't you see? We need a son of Judah to redeem us, not a brother of Judah. 
This is how Paul, the Apostle Paul puts it to the Galatians, reflecting on these ideas. Galatians chapter 4. He says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What's that statement, born under the law, mean? Born under the condemnation of the brokenness of the human heart. So that He could redeem those under the law. The implication from Paul is, if He was not born in this way, He would not be capable of redeeming those who were born that way. We need a son, not a brother. That we might receive adoption to sonship. This is the Gospel. This is what God has done. Fair enough. Your external follies do not line up, we hope, with Judah or perhaps even Tamar. But your heart is equally as broken And when you take an honest look inside to see it, you realize that unless stories like Judah and Tamar are in the genealogy of our Savior, we're hopeless. But no, God's redemption is so strong that even from the line of Judah can come one who ultimately redeems the world. See, Judah was given a mission, right? Just like his... His ancestors, Abraham, his grandpa, Isaac, his dad, his dad, Jacob. What was their call? To be a blessing. Do you remember it? It was that Judah was meant to be a source of blessing and instead became a force of destruction. But Jesus enters into the chaos of destruction and is the final source of blessing to all who would have him. I thank God that Matthew didn't throw away this story. I hope we never have to read it together as a community again. I'll leave that to you and your family. Even the verse I skipped over. But thank God that God doesn't dismiss broken, troubled rehab projects like us. And instead says, no, no, that's my family. And Jesus is born right in it that he might be restored. Can I pray with you?